From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's first confirmed case of COVID-19 was two years ago. So where does the pandemic stand now? We're in a different stage. That doesn't mean it's all gone. It could come back at any time. But we're having a little break. What are the caseloads? What's the outlook? Then, let the games begin. The Paralympics get underway in Beijing, and Pam Wilson of Westminster is on Team USA in curling. You know what? In some ways, this is just a fantasy come true. And later, a new musical about rattlesnake Kate, whose story only begins the day she killed 140 snakes. When your car stops running, needs too many costly repairs, or it's time for a replacement, donate it to CPR. It'll be picked up at your convenience, and you'll get a tax receipt when it sells. To get things started, just follow a few simple setup steps. Hand over the title, and your car will soon be on its way to making great radio happen. Start the easy donation process on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRSCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Saturday marks two years since COVID-19 came to Colorado. The first confirmed cases were March 5th, 2020. It's an opportunity to check in on the status of the virus and what the future might look like. John Daly is CPR's health reporter, and hello, John. Hi, Ryan. So recently we've seen a big drop in COVID-19 cases. Put that into some context for us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it all feels kind of miraculous, really. Wind the clock back to mid-January and Omicron, the Omicron variant, was roaring. Transmission, as reflected in the seven-day positivity rate, was at nearly 30 percent. Cases hit nearly 20,000 in one day. Both of those were records. Now, positivity is below 4 percent. And cases have been less than 1,000 a day since mid-February. And March 2nd, just a couple of days ago, we saw 111 cases in Colorado. I mean, it's all good news, but I'm so afraid to hope anymore when it comes to yeah. the virus. I understand that just as Omicron hit, you got an urgent message from a frontline provider. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. I heard from a Colorado nurse just a few days after Christmas as I was literally on an airplane about to take off uh, to California to visit family. She messaged me to say, everyone has COVID. We have so many staff members that are out. This is cataclysmic and it's everywhere and we can't pull nurses from California or New York or anywhere else. Now is a good time to panic. And there were some expletives thrown in there as well. That was your pre-Christmas message as you boarded the plane yep. right at takeoff. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I was spooked enough that if I had gotten it, you know, three hours earlier, I might have seriously reconsidered our travel plans because Omicron was spreading so fast all over the country. And the question was, how long would it last? What do you make of the message you received in retrospect, John? You know, it definitely reflected the stress that folks in hospitals were feeling. The Omicron wave hit very hard. It was right after Delta and with hospital staffing tight, it was really challenging. And I think almost everyone has a story in our families, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. So many people in Colorado, including medical workers, 
did catch the virus. Okay, how about COVID hospitalizations? They've improved too. For sure, uh, hospitalizations were above 1,600 in mid-January. That was within 200 of their all-time high. And more than half of hospitals at that point said they anticipated a staffing shortage in the next week. Now, COVID-19 hospitalizations are down below 400. A statewide transfer system that was set up to help hospitals hospitals cope with all those patients, that's been deactivated this week. And staffing is still tight, but uh, it's improving, too. Hospital staffing, of course, was an issue before the pandemic, which only made things worse once the virus arrived. What does the future look like on that front? Because we're talking about burnout here still. Big, big question. You know, medical providers and health experts that I've talked to say the pandemic just exacerbated existing staffing issues. You'll recall the state implemented and later lifted crisis standards of care emergency protocols for hospital staffing. I spoke with Dr. Anuj Mehta. He's a pulmonologist with Denver Health. He says many experienced providers have left the field. What that's resulting in is that we're staffing hospitals with very inexperienced nurses and potentially in high acuity settings. What that results in is you have somebody that's been working for six months training somebody who's brand new. So you're losing that expertise that people want from uh, somebody who's been doing this job for years and years. And it's not just hospital staff. All sorts of healthcare workers have moved on. We're talking in long-term care, home health care, all sorts of settings. Okay, back to Omicron briefly. How did it compare overall? You know, it was wildly transmissible, the most transmissible variant that we've seen. And for many patients, though, it was not as serious as the Delta variant. And some of that could be the impact of more widespread vaccination and better ability to treat it. But it was still Omicron, plenty lethal, sadly, for some. You know, absolutely. And you can see it, Ryan, in the state's uh, death data. The Omicron outbreak killed Coloradans in numbers that rivaled the Delta wave for three straight weeks. More than 225 people died the week ending January 16th. The virus killed 277 people in the state. That one week, it claimed more lives than any one week during the Delta wave, uh, again, according to the state's data. We should note that thousands of Coloradans have died from the virus in the last two years. That's right. The state's recorded more than 12,500 deaths due to COVID-19 since the start of the pandemic. Two-thirds of them were older than 70, but there have been deaths in each age group all the way down to children younger than nine. We keep hearing some researchers and government officials say they hope we're moving from the pandemic to the endemic stage of the virus. What does that mean exactly? You know, the state has awarded a pair of contracts to plan a transition from pandemic to endemic. Epidemiologist May Chu at the CU School of Public Health says the situation won't become endemic until the virus becomes predictable and society achieves sustained lower transmission levels. True definition of endemic is that it's predictable and repeatable and cyclical or seasonal in that sense, and you expect it at a certain time. We're far from that at this point. Yeah, very little feels predictable these days. So what are the chances that a variant, a powerful variant, enters the equation? That could happen at any point, for sure. We've seen variants upend things around the globe, like those first identified in multiple countries, in South Africa, in Brazil, in India. We've seen big Delta and then Omicron waves. And of course, others could pop up. I spoke with 
Van Williams, he's a retiree in Lakewood. He says he accepts that reality. Well, I think, yeah, we're in a different stage. That doesn't mean it's all gone. It could come back at any time. But we're having a little break. Many people in the state have been vaccinated, but not all. Many have received boosters. What's the prognosis on when and if folks might need another vaccine for protection? Well, a little more than two-thirds of all Coloradans have had two vaccine doses. Half have had that plus a booster. Federal health officials have said they aren't planning to recommend for a fourth dose for now. Mm. The New York Times recently reported new studies suggest several parts of the immune system can mount a sustained potent response to coronavirus variants. So, Without a fourth shot. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, so more uncertainty. Uh, TBD, I guess I would say. <laughs> John, thank you so much. You bet. That is CPR health reporter John Daly. The first cases of COVID-19 were confirmed in Colorado two years ago, March 5th, 2020. And our show continues after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A Catholic nun in Colorado Springs wanted to help victims of sex trafficking to recover from the trauma. Now she's opened a non-denominational home where survivors decide what resources they most need for their healing. Up to this point, they've been controlled by somebody else. So they'll need to learn what their needs are. No one's ever asked them before. Read about this place of rescue and recovery from sex trafficking at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The 2022 Paralympic Games begin today in Beijing. Among the athletes on Team USA is Dr. Pam Wilson of Westminster. Her first match in wheelchair curling is tomorrow. She spoke with Colorado Matters producer Carla Jimenez before heading to China. Welcome. Good morning, Carla. It's really great to be on the program. It's great to have you. You were in a car accident in your early 20s, which damaged your spinal cord, and now you use a wheelchair. Tell me about your recovery. It, it, it's actually life-changing, um, as you can, I'm sure, imagine. You know, one day you're up and running around and, you know, doing everything, and the next day you're in a bed and you can't move half your body. So it's definitely one of these things that changes your vision on everything that you're doing in your life. Um, I was actually fortunate enough that we have one of the premier spinal cord programs in the country here uh, and was did my rehab uh, at that center. And they, they were pretty proactive. I mean, they were, you know, they got me up and running and considering doing sports and stuff right away. Uh, so, like I said, it, it actually, for me, was a, a good focus, gave me some direction. Let me know that there's life after this devastating type of injury. And before the accident, had you been very sports-minded? Not really. You know, I was more of a recreational athlete, you know, some hiking, biking, tennis, those kinds of things, but not really focused towards competitive sports. Then after the accident, that shifted for you? Yeah, it did. I mean, I immediately started skiing. I started doing road racing and swimming and also played some basketball. So, you know, it was actually a way for me to, I think, compensate for this new body that I had. So I kind of jumped headfirst into this sporting world. How then did you come to discover wheelchair curling? 
curling was is my second generation of sports. So, you know, I did lots of things for a while. Then I got accepted into medical school, went to medical school and kind of focused on my career. So, you know, I was not doing the competitive type of sports that I had previously done. And then I had heard about this wonderful sport called curling, thought it was interesting. So I started to research the ins and outs of wheelchair curling, contacted our local organization, and we worked together to learn how to do wheelchair curling. Because the organization that you had reached out to, they hadn't had the capacity for wheelchair curling at the time? They really didn't have the expertise at the time. I mean, we were, they were more than willing to learn on the run like we were together. So I went out to the club. They actually gave me a rock and put it on the ground and said, hey, here's a 42-pound granite rock. See if you can throw it down the sheet. So I leaned over from my chair, grabbed the rock, and threw it down, and it went 10 feet. And it was like, oh, it's not going to get down that 150-feet sheet this way. So we kind of problem-solved a little bit, and there's these delivery sticks. So the stick hooks onto the rock. I hooked it onto the rock sat in my chair, put my brakes on, push it down. It was no problem getting it down the full sheet. And at that point we were like, oh yeah, this is, you know, the system that people are using. I can do this. We talked a little bit about it, but curling has gotten a lot of attention in recent years. You know, people love watching other people throw stones and teammates sweep the ice to ease the path. But I don't think a lot of people have seen wheelchair curling. Can you explain how wheelchair curling differs? The idea of curling is exactly the same. I mean, it's delivering a rock into that bullseye or what's called the house down at the end of the sheet and getting closest to the center. So the idea of curling is absolutely the same. Wheelchair curling is a little unique in that we don't start from the starting blocks like stand-up curlers do. And we don't have sweepers. So... Unfortunately, you know, we don't get to yell at people. So it's a little quieter sport, but we have to be more exact in our delivery because we don't have those sweepers that are carrying that rock an extra six to eight feet uh, and helping keep it either straighter or make it curl a little bit more. Can you tell me how you have to train then to be exact? You know, you mentioned you have the stick that helps guide the stone. What's that training process like? It's kind of interesting because, I mean, it's a lot of repetition. I mean, this is, again, comes back to muscle memory. And Carl, I was figuring out this uh, fact earlier, but I've thrown a lot of rocks over the years. And if I look at how many rocks I've thrown, at least 1.5 million pounds of granite over the last eight years. That is a lot. What position do you play on the curling team? So the, there's four positions on the ice at any one time. Our team that is going to the Paralympics, there are five of us. I share the lead position with another one of my colleagues, my partners, who's in uh, Minnesota. And what does the lead position do? So four people are on the ice. During each end, eight rocks are thrown, uh, and each person throws two rocks. So the lead is the person that throws the first two rocks for the team. So you're actually setting the game up. You're really setting the strategy that you're going to use for that game. It's a very critical position as far as 
helping set the end up so your skip, who's the captain of the team, can throw those rocks in for the last two and get them in a scoring position. And what led you to become a Paralympian on this team? So the I've been at this for about eight years now. And, you know, I started at club level, um, started pushing myself to see how far I could get, um, went to... I actually went to Paralympic trials prior to this and was a an alternate for the team. Um, they had five, but there were a couple of us in the country if anybody got ill. So I was at that level. And then, you know, just kept training, 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 training. And then we go through national trials and, you know, I scored it really very well and was given a position on the Paralympic team. What have the practices been like during this pandemic? The pandemic has changed things up for us as a team, for sure. Our team is spread out all over the country. So I'm here in Denver. I have a friend. One of my partners is in Connecticut. Two of them are in Wisconsin, and one of them is in Minnesota. So we train individually during the week. And then one week a month, we all get together for team training So the last three months with COVID increases is we've had to put getting together as a team on hold, which has been really hard for us. I mean, we're used to getting together, talking about shots, hanging out, building that, you know, team bonding up. Uh, And now instead of doing that, we are doing it on Zoom meetings. So twice a week, we you get on our Zoom calls and we work through strategies and we run through games, you know, talk about, you know, different things that we're going to, how we're going to do this as a team. But, I mean, it's definitely changed how we would normally prepare for this type of competition. Does the remote nature of these practices make it harder then for you guys to build up uh, the, the camaraderie that you were talking about? We we still, you know, get on and joke around and talk about different things. So, you know, I, I think we've been able to keep our connection with each other. But what we haven't really had a chance to do is play together as a team on the ice. Uh, and, I mean, that's where we're at a little bit of a disadvantage. But we've done this before. Before we went to World Bees, we were in a similar situation and had to do a lot of this on Zoom. And, you know, we ended up doing really well at World Bees and we won that competition. So, I mean, we had to do this before. Uh, and, you know, what? we'll get through this one again. Pam, you're 66 years old. You're not the oldest Olympian or even the oldest Paralympian. But what does it mean for you to be going to the Paralympics at an age when most people might consider a competitive athletic career to be over? You know, that's a really great question because curling is one of these sports, Carla, that it's really skill-based. It's not as much strength and endurance. So it's a great sport for somebody to jump into that's a little bit older. I found this kind of interesting fact, Carla, but the oldest person to curl was a Canadian and he was 102 years old. Oh, wow. So I might just be a baby. (laughs) But, you know, I think it, it just shows you as a whole generation of people is um, 
we're we're staying healthier we're you know we're exercising more and and age is one of those things that um you know i think you're only kind of as old as you feel and i think if you take care of yourself and you think youthful is you can you know actually continue to keep a really active lifestyle you're a doctor and you work with children with disabilities how do you use your own experiences as a wheelchair athlete in your medical practice? So, like you said, I work with kids who either were born with a disability or have an acquired disability. And, you know, the one thing I think that I bring to the table that maybe other people don't is, you know, kids can see that their doc's in a wheelchair but, you know, she's still a doctor, and I hope that they see past their disability. I want kids to to maximize what their potential is and end up, you know, following their dreams. You know, at one point, the thought of going to medical school was like, wow, is that even possible? You know, and I pushed the envelope and, and was able to do it, and it's been a fantastic ride for me. I want the same thing for these kids out there. I want them to to really follow their dreams. Are your patients going to be watching you in the Paralympics? The last month has been unbelievable because almost everybody who comes in, I don't know how they know this, but everybody knows that I'm heading to the Paralympics. Uh, and every family comes in and they're like, oh, Pam, we're going to be watching you. Uh, I had one family recently come in from out of state. I don't know how they knew I was going to the Paralympics, Carla, but the two parents and their son had all gotten Team USA shirts. And when I walked in the room, they were all sitting there with their Team USA shirts on. And I was overwhelmed by, I mean, these, you know, people that I may have inspired, you know, to think again, what the potential for their kid is. Pam, you're a Paralympian. You're one of the best of the best. Do you have any difficulty believing that you got to this point? Or is there any level of disbelief for you? It, it was interesting because we were doing one of our Zoom meetings last night and you know, we were talking about exactly the same concept. And, you know, I really had in my previous life when I was doing track field and swimming, Carla, is I could have been a Paralympian, I think, at that point, but decided not to. And I have worked really hard over the last eight years. I mean, I've thrown 1.5 million pounds of granite at least. I've been at the club. You know, I've really dedicated myself to it. So I, I've i worked really hard, and, and I think that this is fantastic, and I'm so grateful to have this opportunity to, to represent my country to be able to be on that stage with everybody else and competing at the highest level. So, you know what, in some ways, this is just a fantasy come true. That's, that's beautiful. Uh, Pam, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's been so awesome talking with you today, Carla. I, you know, I want to thank everybody who's ever helped me along this journey to become a Paralympian. Uh, so just, you know, it's been a fantastic ride. Dr. Pam Wilson is on the U.S. wheelchair curling team. She also specializes in pediatric rehabilitation at Children's Hospital Colorado. The Paralympics start today in Beijing. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a woman who ought to join the ranks of Annie Oakley 
and Molly Brown. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. We're all broken in our own ways, and we all need help from time to time. And when we can meet each other with empathy and compassion, that's where we can find hope. And that's exactly what Back From Broken is all about. And I remember them like whispering behind my back of being like, oh, don't say that to Lynn. You're going to give her an eating disorder. We're coming back on March 4th with some of the most powerful stories we've ever told. So please make sure you're following Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. She was known as Rattlesnake Kate. I would describe Rattlesnake Kate as ambitious. And she scratched a homestead out of the rough, dry soil of Colorado's plains. It was not for the faint of heart. On a nasty, desperate day, how many snakes was it that she killed, Neela? There were 140 rattlesnakes. And that is only part of the saga, as told by Neela Pekarik, co-creator and co-star of the new musical Rattlesnake Kate from the DCPA Theatre Company. It's inspired by Pekarik's 2018 concept album about Kate. Massacre began Before too long she had no bullets left Grab a sign right out of the ground And clobbered them to death Pekarik was born in Aurora. She is a former member of the Lumineers. Neela, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. There was a real rattlesnake case, uh, though her actual name was Kate Slaughterback, which sounds almost as made up as the nickname, doesn't it? It sure does, <laughs> Slaughterback. <yes. laughs> Tell us about her early years and what happened with those darn snakes. Kate Slaughterback lived out on the plains of Colorado. Um, she was born in 1898 and died in 1969, so she saw a lot of things happen in that amount of time. But she lived in rural Colorado. Near Greeley? Uh, near Greeley, yeah. Hudson, I think, was the exact spot. And she raised uh, a son on her own. She was married and divorced six times. She was struck by lightning, just a very um, resilient kind of woman. She was um, literally struck by lightning? Literally struck by lightning, yes. Okay. And as if that weren't enough, she encounters one day uh, with her child a tangle of snakes. What actually, what collective noun do you use for these snakes? Like a, a nest of them, a migration? Um, I think the technical term for a group of rattlesnakes is a Roomba. A Roomba? Yeah. Okay. And w- <laughs> tell us about this day. Um, October 28th, 1925, she was out on horseback with her three-year-old son, Ernie, and she hopped off the horse to open a gate and found herself in the midst of a whole lot of rattlesnakes. And so... To get back to the horse safely, she decided she was going to shoot the snakes with her gun. She quickly ran out of bullets, but this had disturbed the snakes. And she describes it as these snakes were coming for her, springing into action. And so um, she kind of went into fight or flight mode and chose to fight. She grabbed a no hunting sign from the ground and began to clobber these snakes. And she did it for two hours and killed 140 rattlesnakes. For two hours of pure adrenaline. Mm -hmm. How many times have you tried to put yourself in her shoes in that moment? Oh, my goodness. I I think if I saw one rattlesnake, I would just be so scared, and I would not choose to fight, that's for sure. Um, And I don't know if it's sort of like a motherly instinct that kicked in, if it was just rage that was inside of this woman. Um, There were a lot of reasons for her to be angry. (laughs) Yes, I think so, Men had been pretty terrible to her. 
Yeah, yeah, she lived a really hard life. And so I think she was a person that had a lot of rage inside of her. Outside the particular theater at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, where Rattlesnake Kate is playing, there is a display that brings home Kate's story. What's in the display? Yes, we have a replica of the rattlesnake dress. Um, Kate gathered the skins of these poor snakes and fashioned herself a flapper-style gown. And you can see that exact one in the Greeley Museum, but they were kind enough to lend us a replica to have out in the lobby. And I think it's so interesting that this tangible piece of evidence that she lived and that she left behind is a dress, something that's so kind of stereotypically feminine when she really defied everything that it meant to be feminine and to be a woman. Interesting. You said the poor snakes. Does some <laughs> part of you feel for the snakes? I do. I mean, I think what, I, what I've learned about rattlesnakes is you actually, they're not coming for you. You kind of have to provoke them. I don't think those snakes were going for her. I think she angered them as she started to shoot bullets at them. So I think they were just defending themselves. Oh. She has I- indeed a long and difficult but also meaningful life. The rattlesnake story and the dress make her famous. She travels the world, ultimately, though, returning to that land on Colorado's plains. And you used the thought that it was not for the fate of heart to live on that land, to homestead that land. Just expound on what drove her, so far as you understand. Yeah, it's hard to know why she stayed in the same place because it was really difficult to farm on the dry plains. Not a lot grows, and you really have to work hard for every drop of moisture. And of course, you had to improve the land to keep it, so that was part of the bargain. That's exactly right. To get the government homestead, you have to care for it. And um, she talks in her letters about going out to California and how she just feels better there and she can breathe easier there and she has family there, but she never chooses to leave. She stays here in Colorado and I don't, I don't know the reason. And, you know, home is a funny thing for people. Um, I know I've also chosen to stay in Colorado. Um, and I've been to a lot of other places. And this feels like the right place for me to be. You're from Aurora. As independent as she is, you mentioned this, she marries six times. <laughs> yes. I guess that means she still had hope. I think so. At least five more times, right? Yeah, I think she did have hope. And, you know, she was a woman who was so independent and authentically herself at all costs. And so I think whoever entered those relationships, you know, she wasn't going to change for them. Um, But she kept trying for sure. Did you ever try her dress on? (laughs) No, it's so um, fragile. It's kept in this box. It's like uh, temperature controlled and you have to press a button for a light to come on it. And you can see the individual stitching. Um, So no, (laughs) I've not tried it on. (laughs) Three different actresses play Kate at different ages, from her youth to her death. And occasionally they're all on stage together with you, actually, Neela, singing. This is from some rehearsal tape. Why three actors playing Kate? Is it just that the role is so difficult? That is certainly part of it. The role would be a lot for one person to play. And partially, you just don't quite get um, the authenticity of someone who's playing a 16-year-old or someone who's playing a 70-year-old. And not that Leanna's a little bit older than 16. Andrea's quite a bit bit younger than 70. But um, I do think the the role spans a large amount of time. And so three women playing Kate made a lot of sense. But it also was for the harmonization part of this show. Um, I am a 
avid barbershop quartet nut. <laughs> well, I don't so, think I knew that. I am obsessed with barbershop quartet music. Um, I got into it as a kid through my high school my high school choir teacher, Darren Drown. That's just a lot of where my writing comes from um, and the harmonization of barbershop chords I put in a lot of my music. And so with the three Kates and myself, uh, playing the role of Brownie. Brownie the horse. Brownie the horse. Um, the four of us sing four-part uh, barbershop harmony throughout the show. It's also lovely to see Kates of different sizes, ages, and colors. It's not um, bound by the kind of identity of a single actor, mm. if that makes sense. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. And it was a lot of conversations that we had around that um, because we didn't want it to be confusing if three Kates didn't look the same. Mm. But I think we came back to, you know, this is sort of, we start the show as kind of a campfire tale. And we wanted it to kind of reflect more of a modern group of Colorado people telling this historical tale rather than having it be completely historically accurate that, you know, Kate was historically a white woman. And we thought, does she have to be played by all white women? I mean, I, I don't think so. So, um, so far, it doesn't seem to have been confusing. And they just, all three actors, they bring so much to the role of their own story to the experience. And I love that about it. I'm going to say I was lost at first. Mm -hmm. And I, in fairly short order, realized what was happening. And then I remembered thinking, it's okay not to always know. It's okay to have moments of guessing or of wondering. Is that something you'd like your audience to feel? Yes, I think I think that we put a lot of faith in the audience to be um, tuned into the story in a way that, that maybe it doesn't come across immediately, but there's a lot of devices in there that hopefully by the end yes, you get it. <laughs> for sure. But it's nice to wonder sometimes. Yes. You know, people who hear this story for the first time might think of another musical, Annie Get Your Gun, about mm -hmm. Annie Oakley, <laughs> the cowgirl who starred in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Uh, you make a point in the musical of talking about their differences. I mean, there's even a song about it, Better Than Annie. How do you think these two figures are different? Yes, um, this is no shade at Annie Oakley. Um, I actually, Annie Get Your Gun was the first musical I was in, and I do think she was a remarkable woman. Oh. Um, however, she's a different woman. And so, so often as I've told the story of Rattlesnake Kate to folks, a common response is, oh, she was an Annie Oakley type. Mm. And it made Did you me, play Annie? Um, I played one of her siblings. Okay. She has three little siblings in the show, mm. and uh, they sing a couple songs. And um, I I couldn't project very well and sing lines on stage, but I had this big voice and this tiny little body. <laughs> and so <laughs> the, the songs did well. The acting needed some work. <laughs> okay. But, um, yeah, she, um, you know, it's more to say that there's more than one way to be a woman in the Old West. And in fact, Annie Oakley lived a little bit before Rattlesnake Kate's time period. And so to compare them as like, oh, all stories about women in the West around this general time can be summed up by one woman. It feels like sort of a quota to be filled um, that I think a lot of folks that feel marginalized can relate to of like, oh, there's already this type of person in this type of situation. Sorry, that's already been represented. Yes, yeah. right. But of course, no one says that about like, white male experience. Exactly. You can have a million of those tales There's told. There's tons of cowboys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that song, I Want Everything, that we heard just a few moments ago, what does that tell us about Kate's ambition, do you think? 
Yes. Um, every musical has the I want song, and I went quite literally with this one. Um, so if you Wait, that's like a rule of musicals? It is. I mean, I shouldn't say every musical, but that's sort of a key uh, form of musical theater is to have the I want song. So it's like my shot in Hamilton. It's part of your world in The Little Mermaid. It's one song, Glory and Rent. Don't tell me not to fly. I've simply got two. What is that for Barbara Streisand? You know. Yes. Yeah. Um, Don't rain on my parade. Yes. And they usually appear in the beginning of the show. And it basically yeah. let, you know tells the audience, why are we going to sit in this theater for two hours and hear about this person? <laughs> and so when we talked about the I Want song for Rattlesnake Kate, my writing partner, Karen Hartman, and I, um, this was something she kind of assigned me, like, we need an I Want song for the show. And I Want Everything is exactly what Kate wants. She wants to be exactly who she is, uncompromising, but still de- deserving of love and respect and companionship. Um, and to be taken seriously while still being herself. Okay, to your character, Brownie, the horse. Yes. You stand with your cello. It's in front of you, but it kind of reminded me of the stick horses that you would see yes. kids running around with. <laughs> Love that. Brownie is always near Kate and reacting to what's going on with a you know a pluck of a string. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about this character of Brownie and her relationship to Kate. In, in a way, I mean, maybe besides her son, it's her longest term relationship, isn't it? That's exactly right. And it's tough to write a whole musical about a woman who spent so much time by herself. Um, she didn't really have a lot of strong friendships. Um, and when we read through those letters, like, I don't know any of her friends by name, but I know all of her horses by name. Hmm. And she writes so affectionately about her horses. You know, she really bonded with them. Um, Brownie, there was another horse named Daisy after Brownie. And... Um, we thought, and we thought, what if we bring Brownie to life? And what if I portray her using the cello? And again, one of those things that might not make sense immediately, but I think we get it by the end. The, the letters that you mentioned, those are her letters? These are letters, yes, that the Greeley Museum has archived in the basement. You can go and check out all these amazing artifacts of Kate's. And they were letters that she exchanged with Buckskin Bill, who we also see in the show. Um, he was a colonel who lived in Iowa that they just struck up this friendship um, and they exchanged letters for 40 years without ever meeting. Which becomes an incredible archive yes. of her story. Yeah, I really think that's where I got most of my inspiration and, and source material, just reading through the letters and especially through her voice and kind of hearing the way she talks, um, at least through through pen. Um, that was really inspiring to me. Mm. So Neela Vikarek who was a founding member of Lumineers and uh, went on to write an album about this character, Rattlesnake Kate, has helped create a musical version. She plays Rattlesnake Kate's horse, Brownie. And I I was rendered speechless when I heard you sing this song. Set it up for us before we hear it. Sure. Um... So on the album, there's a song called Western Woman, and we didn't um, quite have a spot for it in its true form for the show. We used the the chord structure a lot throughout. The show starts with kind of this um, motif from Western Woman, but we never got the full experience of the song. Because a musical is not a concept album. That's right. And so much of the songs from the record, I don't think any of them appear exactly as they are on the record. And part of that is has to be plot driven. And so the lyrics have to do a job, and it's so different writing for a musical than writing pop songs because you want them to be catchy and hooky and all those things that pop songs are, but you also need to get from point A to point B, and we want to feel differently at the end of the song than we felt at the beginning for it to do its job. Mm-hmm. And so um, in the story, you know, Kate's only real companion besides her son is her horse, Brownie, and, and she's kind of this support system to Kate. She's a witness to her story, 
And unfortunately, horses don't live as long as humans. Mm. And so Brownie, uh, she gets sick and asks Kate to put her out of her misery. And so the function of this song from point A to point B is Brownie has to get Kate to shoot her ultimately. Um, And so I took Western Woman from the record and turned it into Brownie's Goodbye with some altered lyrics. That song has given me goosebumps virtually every day since I heard it. I saw the show. Thank you for performing that. That's my pleasure. Thanks for asking. Does it hurt to sing that song? The the reason I say, I mean physically. You hit some notes (laughs) in that that are not easy. Or is that just a, a testament to how you sing? That is just something my voice can do, uh, wow. thankfully. It's just one of those party tricks that um, kind of the <laughs> like higher belting stuff, that is a real effort. But I think it's 
just like scientifically the way my vocal cords come together, I'm able to do those kind of whistle tone notes without a, a lot of Strain. trouble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and do you know that you're doing it in a healthy way? I believe so. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we're doing six to eight shows a week and I'm so far feeling great. And I did a lot of touring on my record as well. And I've seen quite a few voice teachers in my day. So, yeah, um, I feel very thankful to have had all the training to be able to get through that. Yeah. The land seems to me to be a character. That's right. Yes. I'm glad that came across. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and the set really conveys that beautifully um, without getting into too much detail. There's a lot of kind of rough hewn wood and pieces of the stage move so that there can be kind of tilling of the land and a kitchen table pops up and these sorts of things. Have you stood in Hudson, Colorado? And ha- and what do you feel when you do? Yes, I have stood in Hudson, Colorado. Um, and I think what we've tried to convey with the set is what I feel, which is it's vast and intimate all at the same time. These small towns kind of in the middle of the plains, whether that's Greeley or Platteville where she's buried, Hudson, where you feel... Like, it's so small and intimate, these little towns, but in this vast Colorado landscape. And you see the mountains from afar. Um, I think some people who aren't from here or who haven't spent a lot of time in Colorado, they think of it as, oh, the Rocky Mountains. But there's really all these flat plains everywhere. Um, Of course, if you've flown in here, it's like, oh, wow, this is what Colorado looks Mm -hmm. like. And a lot of it does look that way. I love this tension between vast and intimate. Which reminds me of the fact that Creating a concept album is probably a a fairly solitary affair, but creating a musical is a vast team experience. How was it to take your baby and not hand it over, but to share it with so many others who had to have their vision on it? You know, whether it's lighting or rewriting or, you know, the actors, the casting. I mean... it's um, a real transition, I have to think. Yes. Um, this has occupied so much of my thoughts um, through this process. And I went in, went into the project knowing this was going to be something I was going to have to do. And so I kept my expectations um, at a good place, I think, to know that I was going to have to collaborate. And in making a record... It sounds I... like you had a little talk with yourself. <laughs> yes. Mila, you're going to need to let go. <laughs> That's exactly right. Okay. And... I, I mean, I got to make a record the way I wanted to make it. I worked with M. Ward um, as a producer, and it was such a great experience of really feeling like that is all of my own fingerprints on that album, that I didn't feel talked into any ideas. It all felt really genuine to how I wanted it to sound. You're talking about M. Ward who did Absolute Beginners? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I know. I'm such a fan. And I um, I had this wonderful experience of, of having him produce my record, and um, it was a great mentorship as well in terms of... It was my first solo album, and so I just I think with a different producer that could have gone a different way. But uh, to really roundabout answer your question, um, the collaboration has been really exciting, and I think because I went in with the right mindset of handing over my baby, as you say, I, mm. I feel that way for sure. You really can't be precious about it, and I just keep in mind of like the set design or the choreography, like those things could have never come out of my brain. And so really kind of staying in your lane of like, I'm here as the composer lyricist and I have input on everything. But at the end of the day, like you just try to stay in your lane a little bit and pick your battles. You know, there are certain songs that got thrown out and rewritten and I was pretty excited to do it. (laughs) Well, and to trust what other talents people bring to the table that you don't. Exactly. Uh And we just have an incredible team, which helps. (laughs) Before we go, do you see yourself in Kate 
Or do you see any of Kate in yourself? Yes. Um, I'm really different from Kate at my core. Like, I think she was very unapologetic, and I think I'm very apologetic. <laughs> I think I tend to be a bit of a people pleaser, quite accommodating. And in finding out about Kate and reading through these letters, I became more confident in being who I am authentically and really starting to advocate for myself. And so I feel like so much gratitude to learning about Kate to be able to kind of stand up for myself. And, and channel that. Channel that, yeah. What was an instance? Yeah, you know, stepping into a leadership position um, has been something that's tough for me because it's not ingrained in me to kind of have those leadership skills in terms of hurting people's feelings or saying what you mean. And I think through being part of this experience, I felt much more comfortable saying like, hey, I actually, that's not okay with me, or mm. I do feel this way, and I, I feel like I embody Kate in those moments. <laughs> Are we going to see this on Broadway? Oh, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. That's the big hope. <laughs> yeah, I tend to say um, I'm keeping my expectations low with my optimism high. <laughs> so <laughs> right now, this is all the plans we have are through March 13th in Denver, um, but I sure hope it's not the end of the journey for this. Neela, it's been lovely to see you. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Thank you. I won't forget It's etched in Feel my blood run cold Wanna jump out of my skin Careful what you see singer-songwriter Neela Pekarek created the musical Rattlesnake Case in collaboration with the DCPA Theatre Company. Again, it runs through March 13th. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our ensemble. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Words are burned in my head. Go on, have your say. I'm keeping score. I won't